What a beautiful morning. Man, I, I feel like I could just come up here and give a doxology and we just all go home. Is it, I'm, I'm full. Amen? Well, I, I, am, I am super excited to be with you this morning. My name is Andy Herman. I am uh, the director of our neighborhood ministries here at City Life Church. And, and I'm so excited to have the opportunity to, opportunity to, uh, to unpack these two verses from Peter's letter to the Christians of his day who were living as exiles in Asia Minor. Now, Pastor Brett did a beautiful job with his sermon last week, setting up the context of these two verses. If you missed Brett's sermon from last week and maybe you haven't had a chance to, to listen to it online yet, I, I would encourage you to go back and check it out. It was so good. You can find that on our website. It's citylifechurch.org. And the sermons are all there, going back in time. So definitely worth a listen. As we dive in this morning, let us be reminded that the words of the Apostle Peter that sit before us today were not written just to his original recipients of 2,000 years ago. They were written ultimately for all Christ followers throughout the ages. They were written for us miraculously preserved by God and included in the canon of, of our Holy Bible. So friends, as, as we seek to understand and apply these verses that are before us this morning, know that these words come to us ultimately from God himself. They are his message for us this morning. So with that in mind, I invite you to, uh, to pray with me before we continue. Father God, Lord Jesus, we pray that you will open our ears, our hearts, and our minds to your teaching for us this morning. God, I pray that you will get me out of the way and speak to each of us, myself included, directly from your word. Holy Spirit, help us to receive the word. Help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, Brett ended his sermon last week talking about the purpose of the church, and, and that's exactly where we're going to pick up this morning. In fact, we're going to spend our entire time this morning kind of circling around that idea of the purpose of the church. And as we saw in the text last week, the purpose of the church is to proclaim the praises of Jesus, the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2.9. Brett expounded upon last week, as he expounded upon last week, when, when we are in Christ Jesus, we are God's people. We are his church built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Our identity is no longer in this world. No. Our identity is found in Jesus. And yet, for a while longer, we must remain as scattered sojourners here in this world that is not our home. And it's in that tension that 
the Apostle Peter addresses us here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If we're to summarize the message that God has for us today in a single sentence, that sermon in a sentence would be, we demonstrate the goodness of Jesus by living honorably as God's people among unbelievers for God's glory. Here in verse 11, Peter moves once again in his letter from the indicative of our identity in Christ Jesus to the imperative of the good conduct to which we are called in Christ. And as Peter alluded to in the second half of verse 9 from last week, he says even more emphatically here in verse 12, the purpose of God's people is to reflect God's glory and demonstrate his goodness for the world to see. Amen? Peter therefore urges us, he implores us, he pleads with us to live out our identity in Christ. You are no longer citizens of this world is Peter's message. So stop living as if you still belong to it. Or stated in the positive sense, if you are in Christ, you are a royal child of God. A citizen of his eternal kingdom. So live like it. Dear friends, Peter says, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Church, we are so easily deceived by the lies of the enemy that they often become the narrative that's bouncing around inside our heads. And if we are to fight against the lies of the enemy, we must know the truth that refutes those lies. We must know gospel truth like we know the back of our hands. So what are some of those false narratives that plague us? Well, number one, anytime we see a biblical text like today's that, that calls us to good works, we must fight against the temptation. We must fight against the false narrative that our good works are the key to our right standing before God. That is simply not the truth of the gospel. The gospel truth is we are able to stand before the God of the universe free from accusation because of what Jesus has done for us and not because of anything good that we have done to earn salvation. Amen? We must every day remind ourselves and one another of this gospel truth. That we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And the good works to which we are called do nothing ultimately to add to or to secure our salvation. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Galatians. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? 
Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing of the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Ironically, it's when we come to the point of understanding and accepting the power of the grace of the gospel that we sometimes fall prey to a second false narrative. The lie that because we are saved by faith in Jesus, our conduct really doesn't much matter. Well, the truth is, the gospel truth is, our good works do matter. Our good works have a purpose, and that purpose has an individual component as well as a public component. Peter addresses both aspects of this truth with his readers. Abstain, he says, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. That's the individual component. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good work and will glorify God on the day he visits. That's the public component. You see, our conduct has great implications. In Christ Jesus, God loves us no matter what, but he hates our sin because our sinful behavior attacks us from within and draws us away from the love relationship we have with God. Our sin doesn't cause God to run from us, but it does cause us to run from God. You all know that to be true. And when we allow our sinful behavior to distance us from God, we become impotent for the purpose that Christ has set before us. We become unable to produce fruit. Jesus urged his disciples, including you and me, in John 15, he said, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, Jesus said, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Jesus taught his disciples the same truth in different words when he explained part of the parable of the sower. Others, Jesus said, are, are like seeds sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Friends, know this. When our sinful behavior causes us to run from the relationship, the love relationship that is ours in, in our Lord Jesus, it hurts us and it hurts everyone around us. 
even when we think we've kept it a secret. Peter uses pretty strong language to make that point here in 1 Peter chapter 2, but really it's kind of mellow language compared to the language that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 6. I think we need to hear those words now because they take this idea of abstaining from our sinful desires, they tie it to the, the sacrament of baptism that we just witnessed, and then they plug it into the power source by which we find victory over sin and death. Listen. What should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Death no longer rules over Jesus. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it, of your body, to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. But offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Friends, our good works really do matter probably more than we know. And here's a summary of the good news that Paul just gave us from Romans 6. We are not the power source for our performance of good works. Jesus is. We are not the catalyst for change in our lives. Jesus is. We are not the strength that enables us to abstain from our sinful desires. Jesus is. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to fill his followers with the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that good fruit that can only come from him. And as the Apostle Paul concludes in Galatians, now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. My goodness, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It is only when we live by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are equipped to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Peter's use of this Warfare language may sound a bit odd to our ears living in this culture, 
We don't use it very often. Our modern Western thinking is prone to believe the lie that that spiritual warfare is not a real thing. But the gospel truth is spiritual warfare is real. And while the battle rages on, Jesus has already won the war. Jesus calls Satan our enemy and names him as a murderer, a tempter of human souls and a liar. Satan is the father of lies and he leads a demonic force that is more powerful than mere human strength. But rest assured, Jesus is infinitely more powerful than the demonic spirit world that's out there. We see this throughout the gospel accounts. Every time in the gospels when Jesus encountered a demon or even multiple demons, what happened? The the demons cowered in fear before the power of our Lord Jesus. Amen? So in Christ Jesus, we have nothing to fear from the demonic world. When we are being tempted, we can call upon the name of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit within us to drive the tempter away with authority. Get away from me, Satan. You have no dominion here. I am a child of the Most High God. And when God gives us victory, and he will, over sin and death, we praise him and him alone. Because it's not about the goodness of our works. It's about the greatness of our God. Now let's focus in for a minute on verse 12. The mission Peter has set before us is to conduct ourselves in such a way as to shine the light of God's greatness into the darkness of the world around us. Understand that when Peter refers to Gentiles here, he's referring to unbelievers. Unbelievers are not the enemy, friends. He's referring to people who do not yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord. The mission to which Peter is calling us, it's not some newly confounded purpose for the church. It's not a modern church growth strategy. It's the Great Commission. Friends, this is a call to evangelism. This is a call upon our lives in Christ to live as strangers and exiles in a land that is not our own. It's a call to reflect the glory of Jesus into the vision field of people who do not yet know him. And we need to reflect upon what's being asked of us when Peter urges us to conduct ourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That word which in our English Bibles is translated honorably, well, in the original Greek language, that word is kolos. 
The word kalos is an adjective that's distinguished much more deeply and passionately than a more common Greek word meaning simply good or fair or well. In its biblical usage, kalos most commonly refers to something that's beautiful or precious or admirable. So I think what Peter's really saying to us here is that our conduct among unbelievers should be attractional. Our behavior should attract people, not to us as the end game, but to Jesus. Our stated vision here at City Life Church is to demonstrate and declare the goodness of Jesus from the heart of Wichita to the world. We believe that we are called to this purpose as a church by our Lord Jesus in response to the Great Commission. And friends, if, if I may remind you, we are the church. The Great Commission does not apply just to our vocational pastors. You can amen that, Andy, if you need to. The Great Commission does not apply just to our elders or just to those who are called as missionaries or just to those who are gifted as evangelists. No. When he spoke out the Great Commission, Jesus was ultimately speaking to every one of his disciples across the spectrum of time and place, including you and me. Jesus was speaking to each one of us when he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, Jesus promised us, I am with you always to the end of the age. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. I'm going to close this morning with one challenge and one encouragement. I guess you get to decide which one's which. First of all, I, I've talked a lot this morning about demonstrating the goodness of Jesus by allowing our good conduct, our good works, to be reflective of God's glory. But I'm sure you noticed that the vision statement of City Life Church mentions demonstrating and declaring the goodness of Jesus. This, of course, means that we need to live in close proximity with our unbelieving neighbors, our unbelieving classmates and co-workers, our unbelieving fellow soccer parents or whatever it may be, our unbelieving family members, and that list goes on and on and on. And it also means that in addition to being a good lifestyle witness, we also need to pre prepare. We try that again. We also need to be prepared to declare the goodness of Jesus, to declare it by speaking the words of the gospel whenever we have the opportunity to do so.
Now, if you're sitting there listening to me right now and, and you feel ill-equipped to that purpose, if you feel like you, that's not something you can do, speaking the words of the gospel to your unbelieving friend, I want you to know that we're working on an equipping class for the fall that will help you develop the words and the confidence that you need to speak of the good news of Jesus to anyone. It might be worth something, maybe something worth checking out if, if that's you. And now finally, you may have thought I was just going to skip over the second half of verse 12 without comment. Well, not, not so. I can't let you off that easy. Verse 12 again, Peter says, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Notice that Peter doesn't say if they slander you as evildoers. He says when they slander you. Friends, Peter is telling us here that our faithfulness to the Great Commission will result in some form of rejection and persecution. We need to be ready for that. And I think we even need to look forward to that, counting it pure joy to suffer for the name of Jesus. I would go so far as to say if we're not suffering at, at some level for the sake of the gospel, it's probably an indication that we're not bold enough in our demonstration and declaration of the goodness of Jesus. Friends, hear me. The great hope of our lives is not freedom from worldly strife and persecution. The great hope of our lives is that obstinate unbelievers, and I can call them that because I used to be one, the great hope of our lives is that obstinate unbelievers might eventually come to faith in Jesus through our continued faithful witness. Oh, we pray that God will make it so. Pray with me now.